The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, your name is majestic over all of the earth. That is, your being, who you are, is majestic over all of the earth. It is great and high and exalted. It is good. You are good. And we, small creatures, insignificant, really, by your goodness, by your grace, have been brought in to know you, brought into not just proximity, but brought into your very presence to know you, to experience the goodness and glory of your name, to see it shining, not as a burning sun to consume us, but as a as a bright, illumining sun to guide us and to create life. That's all by your gracious hand at work. Your name could have consumed, but instead it it nourishes and causes us to flourish, and, and we say thank you. We pray that as we move forward and look at your word again, In this next hour, we look at your word, and then we leave here and carry your word with us that you would do a work that opens our eyes, opens our minds, changes us, and then makes us new. Would you please introduce more of yourself to us? Conform us to who you are. Create life for us that is righteous and delightful. All to your praise, all to the glory of your great, magnificent name. That is the work that we look to you to do and pray you would do it now through your word, by your spirit. Lord, I have words that I have prepared to say and And I'll say some of them, some of them I'll forget, others will occur to me and I'll say them, but it's just human words. Unless you by your Spirit, great God, you by your Spirit would come and would own human words and use human language to communicate glorious truth. So we ask you that you would give order to the human words, that you would give attention, attentive ability to us in our hearing, but we ask more than that, that by your Spirit you would own the words and carry the Word on them. So illumine this morning, we pray. Give life this morning, we ask you. Make us a different people. Bless us with the truth heard and comprehended. Change us with it. Build your people and honor your great name. It's in the name of Christ that we lift this up. 
thankful for him. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Philippians chapter 1, picking up with Paul's line of reasoning where we left it two weeks ago. The Apostle Paul, as you recall, is in prison at this time of his writing. He's in prison awaiting trial before Caesar in relation to his bold evangelism throughout the Roman Empire. He's awaiting trial and verdict, and he's contemplating in the passage starting in verse 18 and following the couple of different verdicts that, that might result and, and what he thinks of that. As he looks ahead, knowing As he looks ahead, he knows that he will rejoice in whatever happens because he knows that the Spirit of God will come, will draw near to him, and will assist him as the Spirit helps every true believer, will assist him to remain bold and faithful to Christ amidst all kinds of trial, including this one. Therefore, whatever happens, he knows his greatest desire, his greatest desire that in him, in his life, Christ would be honored That's going to happen. So he's going to get what he wants and will be filled with joy. He knows. He will rejoice whatever happens, life or death. And life or death, he he contemplates them both because they are both beneficial to him in different ways. So Paul thinks about, as we saw last time in verses 21 to 24, to live as Christ. If I'm given another day of life, if I'm given one more sunrise here, to live is Christ. It's all about Christ. It's for Christ. It'll be a Christ-centered life that I will live if I'm given life. So that would be good. And on the other hand, to die, that's gain, profit, literally. Far better, he says. And actually, that's what he would prefer. I would prefer to die and go to be with the Lord because he will enter into the presence of Jesus far better than anything here on earth. That's what he actually wants. He would prefer that. But if he lives, then there's a great purpose to live for Christ. It's a win-win situation. As you considered last time, he'd prefer death. However, verse 24, the very end of our last passage points us towards today's focus on what that purpose in life would look like. So this is connected to the previous sermon, the previous part of the passage. My desire to depart and be with Christ, however, that being said, verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You need me to remain alive. Which is the bridge into verse 25, where we'll be looking this morning at why they need him to remain alive what that's about, what the answer to that is. And as we look at this passage, what we're going to find is we're beginning to transition from this letter's focus on Paul, on what Paul prays, on how Paul's thinking about Paul's imprisonment, what Paul's contemplating about Paul's trial and the verdict on Paul's life. We're going to be swinging from Paul and things that concern Paul to the church, to us directly, things that concern us, what we should be about. The focus is going to be moving. Along those lines, we're going to find this passage teaching us. Here's my main point for this morning. God has a goal for his church. Our progress, joy, and boasting. God has a goal for his church. Our progress, joy, and boasting. 
And Paul's life and the life of all who administer to the church, whether it be with a capital M, official ministers, or the lowercase m, just all of us who are ministers, servants in the church, Paul's goal and ours should be not only to pursue that goal ourselves, for ourselves, but to pursue that goal for the church. Progress, joy, and boasting for the church, as well as for ourselves. We'll be considering both of those things this morning, with primarily looking at how we ourselves individually and we as a church are to, are to pursue Christ. Progressing in joy and with boasting. That's where we're going this morning. Let me read the whole passage, beginning with the very end of verse 18, down through verse 26, but we're only going to be focusing on verses 25 and 26. Beginning, of, beginning with the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. We'll stop there. I'm going to make two observations. Here's the first one. And the first one is, if you're moving through this and wondering, the first one is much longer than the second one. It'll be okay. <laughs> I think. No, it will. First observation. God wants his church to experience progress and joy in the faith. God wants his church to experience progress and joy in the faith. He has an aim. He has a goal, something he's after in the church. It's first expressed for us in this passage, verse 25. It's God's goal because while we see Paul's talking about what should I choose, I'm not sure which way I want to go, Paul really does not have any choice in the matter. He's going to be on trial, and Caesar's going to render a verdict. But actually, in fact, Caesar doesn't even have the deciding vote. Whatever verdict Caesar renders is going to be God's choice. God, who is sovereign over all, is going to be determining Paul's future. And though, as we saw, Paul would prefer to die and go be with Christ, he knows, verse 25, convinced of the fact that it's more necessary for the Philippians that he live, he knows what God's going to do. God, looking at the Philippian church and always intending to do that which is best for the church, Paul says, I know what's best. I know God always does what the church needs, so I know what God's going to do. God's going to send me back to you on God's mission. It's not really up to me, not really up to Caesar. God has a purpose in this. He's going to send me back. It's God's goal. What God wants done there is why I'm going to be released. So he continues, I know that I will remain, that is live, 
and continue with you all. A word that's very similar to remain, but has a focus on a, on a job or a role. I will remain, and I will remain on with you in this way, this relationship that we have, me, teacher and guide to you. God's going to send me back, keep me in this role with you for your progress and joy in the faith. God's going to send me back because God sees that my presence with you is necessary for your progress and joy in the faith. That's what he wants for the church. That's what he wants for all of us. We always have this need. It's not a need that's ever finished. Our progress and joy in the faith. Consider them separately. We need progress in the faith. That is, progress in the whole, this is, this is long, in the whole body of truth that makes up God's revelation to humanity about who he is, about who we are, about what is wrong with us, about what God has done to address and to remedy what is wrong with us in Christ, and about what God has done to open our eyes to see what God has done and to receive it, and about then how we are to walk and live having received that remedy from God, and about what God has done to enable us to walk and live, having received what God has done, and about what is coming to us who have walked in and who have received what God has done, which is a mouthful. So we could shorten that and say, God's revelation, God's truth, biblical Christianity, the gospel. Any of those things shorthand are capturing all of what I just said, the faith. This that God has revealed to people about himself and about us and what he's done and how we are to pursue him in his power. We need progress in the faith which is not simply an increased understanding of these facts I just mentioned. It includes that, certainly. It starts there. It must start there. But, but for progress, for there to be progress in, in people, in anything, there's not just an increase in knowledge and understanding about something, but there's an experience of change. Change that improves that sees a, a shortcoming, a, a failing, a flaw, and in some way remediates that. It improves it. It changes. It modifies. That's progress. Growth. So it isn't just, to take a simple example, if, if you talk about progress in a city's sanitation, progress in the sanitation of a large city. It is not progress to just understand germs. It's not progress to understand that if we had clean water, if we washed, then sanitation would increase. That's not progress. 
progress in the sanitation of the city would be an actual application of these truths understood and then applied so that sanitation is. So that sanitary conditions, cleanliness, is. See the difference there? And I'm belaboring this point because many of us, I, I think, unfortunately, have confused increased understanding with progress in the faith. You may dramatically increase in understanding and not progress an inch. What we need is progress in the faith. The truth of, for shorthand, the gospel moving in, taking hold of us so that the character of a Christian's life or the character of a church's corporate life more closely resembles Jesus, not just knows more what it would look like to resemble Jesus. Difference. Actually resembles him. Is actually growing in Christ-likeness. Paul is to help with that. And will when he comes. But he doesn't wait until then. And really, what this, what this verse is, is this is the hinge right here that turns us towards the whole rest of the book where he is going to teach on what progress in the faith looks like. When he comes, he'll talk more about that. And when he comes, he will model it. But until he comes, he's going to write teaching it and send Timothy. Chapter 2, he's going to send Timothy to model it. So if we want to ask, what does progress in the faith actually look like, we could just look at the whole rest of the letter. Verse 27. Look at it next week. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your life show progress in the faith. Still in the same verse. That you would stand firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Progress in the faith would look like the people of God humble side by side together standing for this truth in the public sphere. Not just knowing that they should, actually doing it. You need progress in that. Chapter 2, you need progress in having the same love and of being of one mind like Jesus in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Verse 14, we need progress in doing all things without grumbling or questioning, which is like Christ, humble and silent like a lamb when led to slaughter. So very unlike the world. Chapter 3, we need to, we need to count all things as rubbish so as to gain Christ. Chapter 4, to look forward to that which is coming, a citizenship in heaven, to lay all of our requests in front of God and leave them there and rest. Many of those verses sound very familiar to a lot of us. I picked a couple of the highlights. To know them, and to have them ring a bell, is not progress in the faith. We actually need to progress in being humble with one another, 
in living without grumbling and without questioning. In setting our hope on that which is coming, on a citizenship in heaven. In presenting our requests before God and walking away at rest. To actually be like that. Now, obviously, I'm just skating across top of these passages. We're going to talk about all of them more later. But the point I'm trying to press home now is there is truth to understand that then must change life. And what God wants for his church is honest-to-goodness progress in Christ-likeness. Transformation. In the church and in you. That you individually, that we and that you would not just be a saved person, but a transformed person, weaned away from the world's ways and transformed to be like Christ. That's what he's after in you and in us. Not just saved, different a people who shine like the sun here on earth as we live differently. And as we experience our lived life differently. This gets me to joy. And to be honest, this, is the, this in my mind, grammatically, the next point is the main point. Experientially, for me, this is the main point. Joy. I press pretty consistently in my life on this transformed, on this progress in the faith point. And I press pretty consistently in my life, and, and I think in our church, on the, the second point, preview of the second point, boasting in Christ point. But I find this, this central piece here, so we've got progress, joy, and boasting, this joy piece right here, this is, I'm searching for this. Constantly. I'm looking and looking and looking and longing for joy. And joy is all over Philippians. So, as I said, grammatically, the next point's the main point. This is, this is big, though. This, this is the most important thing for me. Progress in the faith, he wants. He wants a certain type of life and a certain attitude in that life. And you see they are equal. Progress and joy in the faith. Verse captures both of them. God wants both. God is going through the bother of saving Paul in Rome and shipping him back to Philippi so that the Philippians would grow not just in their progress in the faith, not just in holiness, but in joy. I'm going to send you somebody, church, that will help you to enjoy this life that I want you to progress in. For your joy. They're both there. Joy is a requirement. God's goal for the church 
And not only here, you jot down 2 Corinthians 1.24, different church. And Paul there also describes his ministry, his ministry amongst the Corinthians then, with these words, we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. Look, he connects the two things again. In the faith, standing firm in the faith, joy. And that's what I'm here for, working with you, that as you stand firm in your faith, you would have joy. That's my job, says Paul, in Corinth and in Philippi, in the church. God's after our joy. Not joy like the world knows joy. Joy in the faith. A joy that is not tied to good health or successful jobs or fun families or delightful cookouts on holidays. I don't know what you have planned for this afternoon. You might have a, a great time this afternoon in the middle of wonderful weather with family that you enjoy and just think, what a delightful day at the end of it. And, it, and, it, and it's not what he's talking about. Completely unrelated. Even if you thank God for it. Completely Unrelated. He's talking about joy in the faith. That is, all the stuff that I just talked about before. Joy that comprehends, that sees and, and grabs firmly hold of, such that it changes my mind and fixes my thoughts on what is true. All of that body of knowledge about who God is and who I am and what's wrong with me and what God has done to, to fix what's wrong with me and how he has acted to enable me to see it and to embrace it and how he has pointed out a path for me to walk and empowered me to do so and promised me that he has everything in the palm of his hands for me and has secured me and is carrying me on into great glory. That captured Stuck in here, changing me, joy in that. Nothing to do with perfect hamburgers and 85-degree weather with friends. Nothing to do with terrible food in the snow with enemies. Nothing to do with either one of them. Joy in the faith. And that's really good news. I'm not against perfect hamburgers, and I like snow. I'm not, I'm not against nor for any of that. I'm pointing out, bless God, the joy that he wants in the church and commands is entirely independent from any of that. You don't need this to go well for the joy that he commands and actually provides. It's a joy derived from the faith, a remarkable reality that I'm speaking about, and it is a remarkable way to summarize the Christian's experience. The real Christian life properly lived, think about this, the real Christian life properly lived is a life of great, deep, profound joy. No matter what happens, 
a life, if you're properly living the Christian life, there is a profound, deep, real joy, independent of circumstances. Such good news. Different than the doing, different than what we are to progress in, it is the attitude while progressing in the faith. So what is it about the faith that should make for joy in us? Think about it. Think about it. This faith, that body of truth, God's revelation, biblical Christianity, the gospel, this faith delivers you who believe out of guilt and condemnation, delivers you from death, delivers you from shame, delivers you from eternal damnation, delivers you from flaming fire, from the vengeance of God, which He will inflict on all who do not know Him according to this faith, biblical Christianity. In case the phrases don't sound familiar, I'm grabbing things right out of the Bible. 2 Thessalonians especially, chapter 1. He will cast all such ones who do not know Him according to this faith, cast them out of His presence, out of the presence of the glory of His might, and they will suffer punishment for eternity of destruction. Because of this faith, Christian, because of Christ's cross death, Christian, you've been delivered out from that. The punishment has been paid and you will never know it. You will never know this awful terror. You'll never get closer to it than just the word of it. Instead, you have been delivered into the shalom of God, the whole right peace of God, the eternal Sabbath that is lived out, experienced perfect humanity, full of everything that is right about life, full of all that is good and whole and just and pure that we only have the barest taste of now, but will in fullness forever drink of as we pull in and enjoy bathing in the river of life, eating from fruit in every season of the trees that line that bank of that river. And best of all, we will sit there and drink and eat and feast and work and play in the presence of this glorious Son. Jesus, God the Son. The deepest desires for intimacy your heart has ever known will be met in relationship with Him. The deepest mental stimulation that your mind has ever... Do you, you know mental stimulation, the joy in that when you think on something and work it and you see beauty rise from something you're studying? You will study Christ forever and experience the deepest, most profound mental stimulation you've ever known. Satisfied in that. Exploring truth with Him. The fullest beauty that your senses have ever desired and will ever comprehend will be seen in, in this perfect Son with you forever. 
holy perfection embodied. Christ, God the Son, beheld, not only through a glass dimly, but then delivered into His presence. You will see Him face to face because of this faith. It is a union that is sweet and pure and whole. And while you only know part of it now, you are promised now that He holds you in His hands, has everything under His sovereign dominion for your good in absolutely every single detail. Everything that happens to you passes through His wise, omnipotent fingers and is determined for your good. The reality of this faith. We are His heirs, sons and daughters, friends. We are His people. We are His children. We are His. And the joy of this faith is the realization of all of this truth, the real belief of it, of this reality, gripping you so that it is more than just stuff the guy on stage said, but it is real. Real. So that you see it with your eyes, the truth, the faith. While we live in a world that brings sorrow, we are called to be ever rejoicing because this that I just was speaking of is the truth, is real for you, Christian. We are called to live in joy in this faith, commanded and enabled as our minds are set on glory, as it is taught to us and modeled for us by the Spirit, truth pressed into us. As our minds are set on it, on God and the Gospel, what is there not to bring joy to your life? Oh, why so downcast, oh, your soul? Put your hope in God. This is the truth. It is real. It is more real than anything you will encounter here. It is the reality you are encountering here in all the other realities. Our minds set on that, we know and walk in joy in the faith. And right there, that phrase... Our minds set on that, we know and walk. That should alert us to a huge clue in our joylessness. After all, we have to think about joylessness because that's reality for most of us most of the time. And as I said, I'm talking about all this, and this is the thing that I find myself hunting and longing for and missing Joy. So I, I preach all this, this reality, this pressing forward of this truth that's required of me and, and it's true of me. And, and I need to explore joylessness. You do too. There's a huge clue in that phrase, our minds set on. This is important and it deserves some thought. Think about this. 
Joylessness comes from an unsatisfied longing. A longing, a desire, I'll use myself, that I am deeply convinced, often convinced beyond even the conscious level. What I mean is that I'm I'm often not thinking it all through. I'm just so deeply convinced of it that it is the way it is. Deeply convinced that some particular longing or desire must be realized, must be obtained, or conversely avoided, in order for good, right life to proceed. I am deeply convinced that if X doesn't happen like it must, then any positive outlook on life is incorrect, impossible even. Maybe even inappropriate, I might think. I, I, can't, I can't be joyful with this going on. That would almost be to justify it. I'm so deeply convinced that, that X, that this desire must be for any good and right life to proceed. I cannot say good over a life that lacks this thing or, conversely, has this thing. I cannot regard my experience as blessed and will not regard my experience as blessed if this desire is not met. And so I do not rejoice. I do not feel joy in this undesirable situation that is missing, or that contains, that is missing the thing that I am convinced must be for life to be good and right. Follow that. That's what's going on in joylessness. Maybe beneath the conscious level, what's going on. You need to take hold of that for a moment and analyze it and realize something. It is all self-determined reality. I am deeply, thoroughly convinced that I cannot regard my experience as blessed or good given this or that or lacking this or that because I have decided that my experience is not good and is not blessed in the absence of this or that. What do you mean, joy? This is terrible. It has or it lacks joy. You insane? Oh, sure. I'm a new creation in Christ, delivered from wrath into eternal life. But never mind that. Have you seen my workload? To be trivial about it. I just got passed over again for a promotion. Oh, indeed, I am an heir with Christ, and to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But my spouse can be so irritating. So uncaring, so hurtful, so abusive. My parents don't listen, they don't understand, and I can't get a date, and I don't have any friends, and I'm so lonely, and my health is failing, has failed. 
Woe is me. Now, I list off things there. And maybe, in, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, well, I'm not joyless over the fact that I've got a lot of workload. Yeah, you are. Absolutely, you are. I, list, I mean, I list off some things there that maybe we chuckle at and say, that's, that's kind of like, that's 90% of our joylessness. I work too hard, and my spouse doesn't appreciate me, my parents don't understand me, and my friends aren't nice. That's 90% of our joylessness. And then add in some other stuff that's perhaps a little more serious. I have an abusive spouse, and I have cancer, and etc. Face what you're joyless over. And recognize that you yourself are putting it right next to, I am an heir with Christ. I am promised right now even a foretaste of all of the riches of heaven and promise that He holds everything in His hand to only do me good and will deliver me from every ounce of suffering into vast eternal glory. Put that right next to that over which you are joyless. That situation, sometimes it's just so vague as I feel kind of purposeless. I'm so lonely. My health is failing. Woe is me. No. Blessed are you, Christian. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Commands, Philippians 4. Joylessness is just so much, get this, in the end, joylessness is just so much self-worship. That's what it is in the end. It is just so much self-idolatry. It is self, set up as God, determining what self needs for blessing and good and mourning when it doesn't get it. All the while rejecting the wave upon wave upon wave of grace poured out on you in Christ because of this faith. It is self not thinking about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, that which is excellent and worthy of praise. It is self not setting self's mind on things above, on the faith. That's also from Philippians 4. Command. Which is why he can command joy. Ever, ever wonder why he can command what seems like a feeling? Because of where the feeling and its opposite comes from. To command joy is to command that you dethrone yourself. And to command that you set your mind on the truth. To command that you hold the faith in front of you and say, this is true. I am tremendously blessed. Oh, Oh, look at wave upon wave upon wave of gracious, glorious, merciful blessing poured on me. Yeah, it's snowing and the food's terrible and people don't like me. So what? 
real brief aside, obviously there are things you need to address in life. Your joy does not, does not, in fact, justify all kinds of sin and wickedness. These are two separate things. Paul recognizes wrong in his stoning, wrong in his potential beheading. It's wrong. And he rejoices in the midst of it. So can you. So must you. And so can you because it's coming from what you set your mind on, what your focus is on. The truth of the faith or what I have determined I need to be happy. Oh, church. Christian. Stop and think about this. There's a life we're to progress in. There's boasting in Christ is coming, and I spent a minute talking about that. Joy. It's commanded because it is the honoring of Christ and a, an acceptance of His worldview above my own. It's commanded. And my goodness, don't you want it? Yes. Spend your whole life searching for it. Here it is. Not just commanded, but offered and actually enabled. As he says, the faith is what drives joy. All of this truth, I'm going to lay it out in front of you and pour it all over you. Fill your mind with it. Reckon it is true, Christian, you fortunate person. May we know the joy of the faith. May you know and focus on and glory in Christ. That's what takes us to the second observation, which is brief. They are related, though, because ultimately what creates joy in the faith is very closely related to this. The language is slightly different, but it's, it's this. God's ultimate goal, so the first one, God wants his church to experience progress and joy in the faith. Second one, God's ultimate goal for his church is its boasting in Christ for all he has done. God's ultimate goal for his church is his boasting in, is, is its boasting in Christ for all he has done. Verse 25 contains goal that God has for the church. He's going to save Paul and bring him back for their progress and join the faith. That's the first goal. And grammatically, as I said, it's subsidiary. The second one, verse 26, is the main one. So that in me, it says, in, in Paul, in, in what happens to Paul, specifically in his coming back to them again, so that in me, as you consider my being returned to you, you will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Or another way to put it, you will have ample cause to boast in Christ Jesus. The word is most commonly in the New Testament translated as boast. However, that word sounds a little wrong in our ears sometimes. We have to take care to understand what he's getting at. To boast in something, just generically, to boast in something 
is to regard it as excellent and praiseworthy, desirable in some way, than to depend on it and lift it up in front of others, to point to it, to kind of tie yourself to it, to exalt it and exult in it for you. So, you boast in the right object, not a problem. But the Bible repeatedly warns us against boasting in the flesh. That's kind of the essence of sin. To boast in the flesh, to boast in what I am about, what I am capable of, what I'm doing, to regard that as significant, lift it up, tie myself to it, that's the essence of sin. On the other hand, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what God's getting at. His ultimate goal for the church is that we would be people who boast in the Lord for all that he has done. This particular church will have ample reason to boast when they see God pull off the miracle, so it would seem, of springing Paul from Caesar's jail and sending him back. And they will have even more abundant reason to boast in God, to glory in God, when they see why God sent Paul back. And Paul's actually useful and helpful for them in progressing in the faith and in their joy. They see God did that. They're not going to boast in Paul. What's Paul? Paul's just a servant. Paul's just a servant who plants seed and waters. But God gives the growth. So God sent this one back to us for our progress and our joy. What great gifts to us. And then, through Paul's ministry, God made this happen in us. We actually progress and we actually enjoy glory to God for His goodness. That's what they're going to go through. And we too, though our particular story is not quite the same. Paul's not coming out of prison to come to us. But we are, similarly, the church always called to glory in Christ for all that He has done. To say God at work in Christ in this way and in this way and in this way. Essentially, the faith. I see God at work in Christ and I see God at work in Christ and sometimes in the circumstances of my life indeed but in the in the issue of the faith what God has done to remedy my problem and how God has actually transformed me and is renewing my mind constantly oh marvelous is this God He created the faith in the first place Sending his son to earth to take on a body to go to the cross to pay for sin. He created the faith. And then he opened my eyes to it. Gave me faith to trust the faith. Gives me his spirit to move me to follow his decrees. God, glorious in all that he does for me in Christ. So he should be the one that I set my eyes on. He should be the one that I boast in. Everything comes from Him and is for Him. All of our deep, profound joy that we want and that we grow in experiencing, it's because God has acted to provide it. What an awesome God! So, 
To boast in what God has done in Christ is what he expects of the church because the church ultimately is not about the church. The church ultimately is about Christ. It's what he expects of us. And again, to obey him moment by moment is great delight. C.S. Lewis wrote about, I mentioned this last week in conversation with somebody, C.S. Lewis wrote about his discovery as he was coming to faith, I think, his discovery about the answer why God's about boasting in himself. At first it struck him as off. Why does God constantly want people to boast in him, constantly want people to glorify him, constantly want people to sing his praises? And he realized it's because in anything in life, Human joy is enhanced by the singing of the praise. And he points out a couple of examples, but we could take our, life, our lives. How many times do you stand around, maybe two guys stand around and say, did you see that, that uh, first goal that the Netherlands scored against Spain? Oh my goodness, there's a picture in the paper. The guy is like five feet off the ground, horizontal. He's about to head the ball in. It's amazing. I tell that story, and in the telling of it, I'm delighting. I am experiencing joy in the telling. I don't tell it to inform you. I tell it for myself. All of us. Everything you sing the praises of, everything you glory and everything you boast in, you tell to enhance your own enjoyment as you revisit that thing. That's what Lewis discovered. Ah, that's why God tells us, boast in the thing worth boasting in, me, to my glory and to the actual final fulfillment of your joy, which is what I'm after in the church, joy and glory. Boast in the Lord for your own joy. It's a marvelous connection. Do you see the connection? It's a marvelous connection that the glorying in God and the joy of His people are connected to the same thing. It's marvelous. You cannot enjoy Him without boasting in Him. So boast in the Lord. That is, run through your mind all the facts of the faith. See the goodness of God in every single one of them coming to deliver you from and to deliver you to and to secure you now and, and provide for you a future. Run that through your mind and see the goodness of it. See the goodness of God in it. Sing his praises in your heart. Sing his praises with your mouth for his glory and for your joy. No matter what's going on in this fallen world. God has a goal for his church. Our progress, our joy, and our boasting. Let me pray. God, make us a boastful, a glorying people in the right thing in you.
that you would be honored and that we would enjoy you. Free us, Lord, from self-worship, from self-boasting. Free us, even in the places where, where we don't understand why we are joyless. Point out the thing we're holding on to. Do that maybe now in people's lives, Lord, as perhaps some come to you and, and ask for more joy. Show them where joylessness in them is coming from. Meet us to bless, to grow, build your church, and honor your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.